This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Not all the candidates for governor this year have other full-time jobs, but Donna Lynn has one, and then some. Well, good afternoon. It's great to see so many of you. Lynn is Colorado's lieutenant governor and chief operating officer, and that means a lot of appearances like one last week in a ballroom at the Colorado Convention Center, where she handed out an award in her boss's name. Team Governor's Award for Worksite Wellness goes to Children's Hospital Colorado. She posed for photos with the winners and then stepped off the stage to put on her candidate hat, hustling across 14th Street to meet with some of her campaign chairs. Her run for the Democratic nomination in 2018 is actually Lynn's first campaign. It is hectic. <laughs> it's energizing, though, because you do get to meet so many people. And that's part of what propelled me into thinking about doing it. When Governor John Hickenlooper picked her as his deputy two years ago, she said she had no plans to run when his term expired. Yet here she is, hoping to become the first female governor of Colorado. Despite the fact that she's so visible, traveling to every county as lieutenant governor, Lynn has struggled to show people her real personality. So her first campaign ad, released last week, shows her getting a tattoo, which isn't her first. This one means be bold. And now I'm getting another. The new one is on her shoulder. It says, fight for Colorado. This is her adopted state, but she said she has always had some fight in her. My personality was probably formed by um, being a young woman in the 50s and 60s and having uh, been told a lot of times, no, no, you can't do that, or there wasn't support for doing that. And I think I set out to defy some of the expectations that people had of me as a young girl in that era. So I've always been wanting to be a little bit of a pioneer. Um, And maybe that ties back to what you're saying, which is being the first woman governor of Colorado. But I didn't set out on that path in any way. And we'll talk more about the path that led her here. Donna Lynn is in our studio. Welcome to the program. Good morning. First off, what's the biggest problem facing Colorado? What would you do to solve it? I think the biggest problem that I've uh, related to and, and experienced is that there are different types of people in this state and different experiences that they're having, whether it's around our economic recovery, it's around the challenges of working families. We talk uh, at a very high level about the success in Colorado, but not everybody's experiencing that. And I feel that very personally, having been a a daughter of working class parents and somebody who struggled for a lot of her life. You're painting a picture of two Colorados that have a very different experience. And uh, with a focus on those who are struggling, what would you do as governor to make their lives better? And be specific for me. What about their lives do you think needs improving? Well, I think I've worked on a number of issues uh, that I think could actually impact uh, their lives. And hopefully as governor, I will continue that work. Uh, Certainly affordability of housing and health care, I think, are the two biggest issues that a lot of working families have to tackle. Uh, Some differences are geographic, uh, rural versus urban. But even within our urban areas, we've got people who are making uh, 
$9 an hour and struggling to find health care, struggling to find housing, uh, and struggling to pay for child care. And that, those are, to me, the key issues. I've outlined a few things that I would like to do uh, that include providing for more child care tax credits and for more child care uh, Trying to work really hard on that issue of affordable health care, which I've done for the last pretty much 40 years of my life as well. I want to unpack these issues. So we'll get to affordable housing in particular a bit later. But let's talk about health care. And I think this is a, a nice time to transition to your biography a bit because you came to Colorado from the East Coast 13 years ago to run Kaiser's healthcare operation in Colorado. Before that, you'd worked for the city of New York and also in healthcare there. And you boasted a bit in your first campaign ad, which came out last week, that Governor Hickenlooper asked you to lead on health care and that the uninsured rate has come down by half. But that was largely accomplished with the Medicaid expansion, which happened before you joined the administration. Uh, since you came on, there have been a lot of ideas. But what's the biggest thing? Give us one thing you've accomplished that will affect Coloradans health care in the future and presumably its affordability. It is affordability, but affordability is not one issue that stands on its own. And one of the biggest issues that you know that we have in Colorado is a mental health crisis. And having been in public health my whole life and worked on this, we've got to tackle uh, mental health. And we've got to make sure that we do it in a way that it isn't in isolation. It's part of the conversation every doctor has that we have in our schools that we have, no matter where we are, to recognize that some of the issues that we have, whether it's gun violence, suicide rates, et cetera, are about mental health. But where have you been able to move the needle as lieutenant governor? So we actually got a $65 million grant from the federal government through a program called the State Innovation Model. I know it sounds wonky, but it has allowed us and the people work directly for me to go out and work with primary care doctors and talk about how they can incorporate uh, recognition and treatment of behavioral health in their offices. So $65 million has gone out to thousands of physicians in our communities to help them. That costs $65 million to tell doctors to ask about people's mental health? Oh, sure. Well, we've got thousands and thousands of doctors, and we need to give them the tools to be able to take care of mental health issues. In this campaign, you favor opening the state employee health plan to small businesses, to areas of the state with high costs, and to local governments. What would opening the state health plan to a broader audience accomplish? Yeah, and we actually tried to get this done in the legislative session last year and didn't succeed. Uh, we had uh, some Republicans who supported us, but the committee process didn't allow it to move forward. So I would continue that work. And my experience having been a purchaser of health care for a large employer is, when you've got a lot of purchasing clout, you can influence the design of care. You can influence the price of care. And so by making the state uh, as a purchaser a bigger pool, I think we can have much more effective conversations with doctors, hospitals, health plans, and pharmaceutical companies. Related to the bill last year that did not succeed, analysts at the legislature said opening that state plan to others might increase health benefit premiums paid by all other state agencies, which could increase costs from the general fund. Is that worth it? So first of all, I, I don't accept that that 
could happen. Uh, what you typically do is you look at the risks of different populations, and then those local governments would pay a little bit more, possibly, if they were riskier populations. But they don't need to get into the business of running their health plans, of negotiating with the health plans. When the state has a large purchaser, is a large purchaser, it can do all that work for them so and take di- out some of the administrative expenses. You dispute that that would raise costs I, for the state. Absolutely. I want to talk about education. So there have obviously been teacher walkouts in Colorado. In Pueblo, as we speak, teachers and paraprofessionals are striking. The current governor said during the teacher protests last month that you and he would try to restore the $1 billion roughly shifted from education to the rest of the state budget during the recession. Do you support a tax increase to raise more money and close that gap? I think we've got to uh, ask the people about a tax increase. And, so you would um, favor going to voters, w- what, this election? I think I think it's premature, this election. One of the things that uh, the governor and I did about a year ago was we issued an executive order and we built a stakeholder process. We've got Republicans, Democrats, teachers, principals, superintendents, business people. And we've been meeting for the last year to try to build some consensus around what do we want to look like? as a state? What's our vision when it comes to education? Do you think that there needs to be more consensus built before you can go to the ballot? Absolutely. It's not there yet. I don't think this is a 2018 uh, issue. This is a 2019 issue once we build that consensus. And we're in the process of doing that right now. Now, on transportation, you do want to see a tax passed sooner than later. Uh, That, of course, requires voter approval in Colorado. As the legislative session winds down, I'll note it's not clear what the backup idea is. Republicans say the state can leverage money it already has to make a good dent in an estimated $9 billion backlog to repair uh, and build roads and bridges. What have you seen firsthand being at the highest level of state government that tells you there's just not enough money already available to make transportation improvements and that leads you to believe a tax increase is necessary? Well, the first thing is really simple. Um, Our general fund doesn't pay for transportation. It comes from the gas tax. And I think, as most people know, the gas tax hasn't been increased in decades and our cars are more efficient. So we actually are shrinking the amount of money that's available for our roads and our bridges. So there's no question we need to increase the funding for transportation. And unlike the education conversation, the stakeholder work has been being done for years. And the business community is active in the transportation tax, potentially. Absolutely. And metro mayors, as well as the business community and the legislature. Remember, this was Senate Bill 1, which implies a lot of uh, energy and consensus around the needs. So I think what we've got to do, hopefully in the next uh, three days, is see that process through. We have made a commitment to add general fund money, but also recognize that there's either bonding or taxes that need to go forward. Either bonding or taxes. Where do you prefer energies be spent? I think there is, um, a, a, you know, the voters have the right to make this decision for us. And I prefer that the voters make that decision on the tax issue and we address it now. Bonding is just kicking the can down the road because we're going to have to pay for that anyway. Okay. You mentioned frequently on the campaign trail that when you were in the private sector, in your words, you brought jobs to Colorado from California, in part because California was too expensive and congested, so people didn't want to live there anymore. 
Doesn't that sound like Colorado now? I mean, how do you avoid that kind of congestion here? Is it just building more roads? I think there's an extreme of California. Uh, Colorado certainly has seen some increases, but not at the rate California has. Certainly a personal income tax of 14% is also an incentive to move jobs from California to Colorado, where we have a 4% state income tax rate. Um, One of the things that I think in my campaign and that I've observed is we need a planning process that talks about transportation with housing and with economic development. And we often don't do them. We, we, We take them in silos. And I know myself, when I uh, lived on the East Coast, I had to make an economic decision about where I lived because I had a husband and two children living in a one-bedroom apartment. The trade-off was finding more affordable housing, but adding to my commute of an hour. Mm. So what would you plan to do about that? How do you avoid that kind of congestion? What does it look like under a Lynn administration? I think encouraging uh, people to live uh, close to where there's transit right now is one option. Uh, Many, many cities use transit a lot more than we do here in Colorado. But we also have to work on affordable housing so that if you're making that kind of a trade-off, you're recognizing how important it is to maybe spend a little bit more on one versus the other. I'll say that you want to create a statewide uh, office, if you will, or or function in state government to address affordable housing and a $25 million fund that would go along with it. We've just talked about how hard it is to find money already for infrastructure, education. Where are you going to get the money to create a new bureaucracy like that, a new fund? Yeah, well, $25 million I don't think is a, uh, is a lot of money. And quite frankly, the investment is going to pay off in in multiples for people who right now are, in fact, starting to leave Colorado and businesses that are starting to have conversations around where should they locate jobs. So it is a it is a small investment that we're going to make uh, around our housing fund. We are going to also focus, as you say, integrating economic development, housing and transportation with some things that we know about our population, which is it's getting older. And that has some big implications for our state budget as well. We are speaking with the candidates for governor between now and the primaries in June. Today, it's Democrat Donna Lynn. She's currently lieutenant governor. You are less ambitious than some of your Democratic opponents when it comes to a goal for renewable energy, Uh, whereas one of them has said he wants Colorado to be 100 percent renewable by 2040. You've said that's unrealistic, that the legislature would never go for it. And it just reminds me that for people who are having a hard time distinguishing between you and Governor Hickenlooper, that may come as a red flag. I mean, he's known not so affectionately among environmentalists as Governor Frackenlooper. What do you say to those voters who are worried that you'll continue a record they don't see as progressive on this? Well, I want to unpack a few of the questions that you have in those in that. One is um, I'm a doctorate in public health, and so I care deeply not only about public health issues, but as an outdoors person, also about our environment. I think what you'll find in this race, and hopefully voters understand this, I'm not a politician. Therefore, I'm not going to make statements that I can't stand behind. I completely support the transition to 100% renewable or whatever it becomes, 97% renewable. I don't think it's responsible responsible to pick an arbitrary date that's outside the term of the governor, 
right? This governor will be a governor from 2019 to 2027. Yeah, but shouldn't governors be thinking about their legacy beyond when they leave office? Oh, absolutely. But where's the plan? And I think one of the things I'm finding as somebody who's devoted her life to public service, but not in a political frame, is that politicians say a lot of things to get elected. And that's not that's just not the way that I am. I do think we have to have a plan, uh, much as I oversee now, to make sure that our air quality is better, that our drinking water is better. And we, as you know, uh, adhered to the Paris Climate Accords and made that announcement this past July. So I am absolutely committed to staying on that track and to working to move towards more renewable energy. Uh, We've all got to do that. But a hard and fast deadline, I think, is not only not responsible, but it doesn't even address what technology or other changes might happen in the meantime. Let's talk briefly about guns. You've said you'd sign a ban on assault-style weapons with a split legislature that's certainly, uh, at this moment, not in the bag. But uh, were it to get to your desk, would you want it to include the AR-15? It's one of the most popular recreational guns in the country, but one that has also been used in several mass shootings. Would it include the AR-15, yes or no? It would include the AR-15. Okay. And would you apply it retroactively? What to those who already possess yeah. the gun? Um, I have not thought about whether it should be retroactive or not. I mean, I know, you know, we have a Second Amendment. We have a lot of voters in this state that uh, are Democrats, unaffiliated, as well as Republicans who are gun owners. Uh, This is really a conversation to me, not about particular weapons. It's a conversation about what's an epidemic right now. We have an epidemic around gun violence that we need to address in more ways than just getting rid of weapons. But you can't say here today what you do about those already in possession of these guns you'd like to ban. Yeah, I don't I don't think that I've really given that a whole lot of thought. And it's it's, uh, you know, as as we've had the conversation in the legislature as well around the red flag laws, I know some people have said it's it's about property rights. It's not about property rights. It's about protecting people. I'm glad you brought up the red flag bill. This is the idea of creating a sort of gun restraining order for people who may be a harm to themselves or others. Its prospects do not look great heading into the state Senate. There had been some discussion in your administration, in the Hickenlooper administration, of perhaps passing an executive order if the legislature doesn't act. Is that going to move forward if it doesn't? You know, we will have those conversations. Obviously, putting something into law lives well beyond uh, this current governor, and it's always preferable to have something uh, codified that way. Uh, And that's where as you know, some of the most conservative states have have moved as well. And again, to me, it gets back to we know that many of the incidents uh, in the past, whether it's been suicide or it's been about mass shootings, have been people who have had uh, multiple instances of people warning about their mental health. And we really need to tackle that issue. So I'm not hearing clarity yet on whether an executive order would happen. Well, it's not been decided. It hasn't point. been decided because we haven't heard the fate of the bill. And we obviously have to consider, you know, what legally is enforceable. Do you think there's a special session looming with issues like paratransportation and red flag law? Pending here with, with I think we are going to work as hard as we can over the next three days to make sure that we wrap up all of those issues in a man in a manner that's satisfactory. If you were governor right now, would you want to sign an executive order to make a red flag law happen? Only if it really had the same impact as the law itself. It I would want it to be enforceable and as I said, to succeed going forward. 
You know, there are some who accuse the current governor of not using the bully pulpit enough, of not getting out in front of legislation and saying, this is what I want. Do you think that your leadership style would differ from John Hickenlooper's were you governor? You know, I think that um, I've got a long history in working with labor unions and negotiating labor contracts, working with Democrats, working with Republicans, and it's pretty complicated. And I think that, you know, you do run some risk when you get way far ahead of an issue. Um, but I did that on healthcare last year, and I am proud of the work that we did, even though uh, we got stopped by the Republicans because we were doing the right thing. The House Republicans, I'm sorry, the House Democrats, uh, some of the Republicans in the Senate, to try to make sure healthcare was more affordable, more transparent, and offered to more people. And there are some key issues like healthcare and housing and education that I think a governor needs to be very aggressive on. More aggressive than the current one. I think so. We've talked a little bit okay. about how I might differ from uh, Governor Hickenlooper, but you never know until those shoes are on how hard it is to make some of the tough decisions that he's had to make. So you would make state history if you become governor because you'd be the first woman to do so in Colorado. And I want to ask about your approach to that. Uh, recently, you got a tattoo on your shoulder. Uh, this is for a TV ad, and the tattoo says, Fight for Colorado. And you told the Denver Post you picked that language because that's what a strong governor needs to do. I wonder, do you feel you have to prove your toughness somehow? I think my toughness speaks for itself. I am a single mother for 26 years. I worked my way through college. I'm a product of the public school system. Didn't have a lot of advantages that many other people had. And I really relate to average working Coloradans. Um, I've survived in some very difficult environments, both in the public sector and in the private sector, and had leadership roles that uh, where I was often the only woman or maybe one of two women in the room. Uh, so I don't think I have to prove anything. I, I happen to like challenges, whether it's climbing all the 14ers or uh, jumping out of an airplane. What was the tattoo about for you? It was a about demonstrating. And I think you, you, when you have a tattoo, and I know they're controversial to some people, you do sort of think about it. You see it every day, and it's part of your mantra. And this is my adopted state, but I love it passionately, and it's given me a lot, and I want to give back to it. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Lieutenant Governor Donna Lynn is running for the Democratic nomination for governor. The primaries are June 26th. We're more than halfway through these conversations with all the major party candidates who've qualified for the ballot. Republican Greg Lopez is next. He's scheduled to be here tomorrow. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. An effort to get guns away from people in crisis who may be dangerous has caught on in several states recently. This is motivated by the Florida school shooting. But in Colorado, there are other events much closer to home that have convinced people here that red flag gun laws are a good idea. And they may be some rare middle ground in the gun debate. Lee Patterson worked with Rocky Mountain PBS to go deep on this story in recent months. And highly. Hi, Ryan. The idea here is to let family members or law enforcement petition a judge to temporarily take a gun away or prevent someone from buying one if there's convincing evidence they're a threat. 
Uh, why did you want to dig into this story? Well, ultimately, this is about helping people who are in crisis so that they don't harm someone else, but also so that they don't harm themselves. Because suicide is a concern here, too. Yes, yes, it's a big concern. And we were surprised to find that right now there are very few options for those folks. Legally in Colorado, a mentally ill person can be forced into a hospital for up to 72 hours if they are in imminent danger to themselves or others. An imminent danger. And what's that called legally? An M1 hold. M1 hold. Yeah. And we found that there were tens of thousands of M1 holds in Colorado last year. But you see, the bar to get one of those M1 holds is really high. I mean, think about all of the people who didn't meet that threshold, right? And think about the high-profile cases where someone was in a mental health crisis, but they still became violent and killed people. The Planned Parenthood shooting, for instance. Right, right. Yeah. And the Aurora Theater shooting. Um, Another man shot and killed three people in Colorado Springs, right on the street, remember? Yeah. And in the final days of the state legislative session, a plan emerged to give families and law enforcement and judges a new option to intervene. And the idea is to prevent these types of shootings, right? It is. And there's one other incident in particular that many supporters of the red flag bill point to and say, this is why we need one of these laws. So my colleague John Fruja and I dug into what happened there. Well, let's hear your report. This is Insight, investigative reporting from Rocky Mountain PBS with Lee Patterson and John Fruja. So, John... Tell me what happened last New Year's Eve. Police were called to an apartment in Douglas County. Okay, hello. Hey, how are you? Good. What's going on tonight? Yeah, well, my roommate freaked out on me. Okay. At 3 a.m., Matthew Reel, 37-year-old man, called police and said that uh, he was worried because his uh, roommate was going to assault him or had assaulted him. Matthew Reel was known to be a person who had mental health issues. He was a person who was known to have weapons. He'd even said in the call, yeah, I've got weapons, I've been drinking, uh, but I'm not here to hurt anybody. If it's upstairs, what's your name and date of birth? What's my name and date of birth? Yes. Why, why? Do you have probable cause? I've already told you that we identified. What's your probable cause? He is, you know, kind of angry, kind of cocky, yelling at them, you know, telling them what they should do, etc. But they got him calmed down, and they said to him, okay, we're good, we're good, okay. All right, anything else for us? No. All right, we're out. And they left. Happy New Year! A few hours later, Matthew Real calls 911 again. Hey, Matt, it's Zach. Officers go back to his apartment. It's Matt, now Zach. a little after 5 a.m. And right now we're listening Zach. to kind of this back and forth between Zach. Deputy Zachary Parrish. And this is from some body cam video from the scene. Okay, I'm at the sheriff's office right here, man. Identify yourself. Matt. Hey, Matt, it's Zach. Hey, Matt, it's Zach. It's like round and around. They keep going. I don't. I just want to make sure you're okay. Yeah, and, and what you hear here is this. Uh, this has gotten yourself. to be kind of a frantic, kind of uh, almost Man, manic uh, response who's that there? Matthew Real has. Real slams the door. Now, what happens next is a, a little difficult to hear in this audio. We're gonna take him. Okay. We're gonna take him. Deputy Parrish is saying that they're going to take him on an M1. An M1, remember, that's when someone's hospitalized when they're a danger to themselves or others. At that point, the deputy decided we're at a point where he is a threat to himself 
and maybe to others. And now we have to take him because if we don't, he could either hurt himself or he could hurt somebody in this apartment complex. And so the two of them go around and around for a few more minutes, and then the body cam video goes silent. While the officers regroup, they're making a plan, and then they go in. Okay. Matthew, come out! Open the door! And at that point, the gunfire begins. The horrendous gunfire begins. Matthew Reel starts shooting. He starts shooting, and he has a high-powered rifle, and he's shooting from probably eight feet away. The officers shoot back. I'm hit! I'm hit! James, you got cover? I got cover, I got you guys! Pelly, talk to me. Talk to me. 301 Adam, we need medical here now. We have one deputy down inside the apartment. I'm not getting anything from him. All of us been, have been hit at least once. By dawn, an officer is killed. Deputy Zachary Parrish. Four other officers are wounded. Two uninvolved civilians in the apartment complex are also wounded. Matthew Reel is shot dead. John, I think in order to understand what happened, how we got to this point in the story of Matthew Reel, we need to know a little bit about his history. Matthew Real graduated from CU in 2005. He went to law school at the University of Wyoming. He joined the National Guard and then eventually was deployed to Iraq as a medic. Susan Real, Matthew's mother, gave an exclusive interview to Rocky Mountain PBS. And, John, you talked with her for a couple of hours. When I was listening back to it, there was something that really struck me. I mean, even after he came home, he always kept his medic bag in his car in case he needed to help anybody at any point in time. He would always have, have the tools to, to, to help somebody in need. To me, the level of care in that instance that Real showed for others is really at odds with the way he died. What happened? So what happened was mental illness. When he came back from Iraq, his mother said he had changed. Um, he was diagnosed with um, some PTSD symptoms. And then we also had access through the family to his mental health records. Um, He was diagnosed as bipolar. Um, So he was manic and he would get depressed. In 2014, Real was living in Wyoming. He had sent his mom and his brother some disturbing text messages. So his mom goes to see him and she gets him into the VA hospital. When she got there, she said she found his apartment. There were tubs all over of water all over the apartments. There was foil all over the windows. He was talking about the end of the world. Uh, he, was, he was very paranoid. And then she realized he had all these guns. And here, going back to John's interview with Susan Real, When you live in Wyoming, everybody has guns. What were you concerned about? Just that he could harm himself or others or, you know, that it, it probably wasn't a good idea for somebody who was mentally ill to have guns. So she took them. She took his guns. So when he got out of the hospital, he walked out of the hospital and got himself out. What did did you do about the guns at that point? He wanted them back and the police told us that we had to give him his guns back. So we gave him his guns back. From there, things continued to get worse. 
Matthew Reel's mental health declined enough that he moved back to Colorado, back in with his family. He stopped taking his medication. He became reclusive, isolated. His family was so concerned that they got in touch with the local police department in Lone Tree, Colorado. Officers went over to talk to him, and he got angry and moved out. I had elevated levels of concern from the time that he left until he died. When you're living on edge 100% of the time until that person either gets help or dies, that's when it, you know, your level of anxiety end. If you're not a threat to yourself or others, the law says nothing can happen. There was just no way to get him help. Real then started posting threatening Facebook messages directed at his former law professors at the University of Wyoming. And at one point, he referenced a, a shooting in Texas, and he talked about, um, you know, killing someone on the streets of Laramie. And they got really, really concerned, turned this over to, you know, the campus police. And then the campus police were involved with Lone Tree police uh, in monitoring him. That's because Real had also been threatening a Lone Tree police officer after that officer pulled Real over for speeding. Local officials considered charging Real with harassment, but the district attorney couldn't act. In an email, the senior deputy district attorney for Douglas County tells the sheriff's department, quote, We do not believe there is a likelihood of success at trial. We have to balance the suspect's First Amendment rights, especially given the wide latitude since we are public servants, with the Lone Tree Police Sergeant's rights. We do not believe that charges are appropriate at this time, unquote. So, not only were Reel's actions not enough to get him arrested, they didn't meet the test for an M1 hold. Just a few weeks later, on New Year's Eve, Matthew Reel killed Deputy Zachary Parrish and was then shot dead. I mean, this was the worst outcome, was the fact that he had died and that he had also killed somebody else. That night should never have happened. A family should be able to get additional help for that person. To force some type. Force, force some sort of intervention yeah. instead of waiting for that critical harming themselves or others. I mean, that, that's, that's a r- ridiculous criteria. There should, there should be a better way to deal with these situations so that nobody dies. Hours after the incident, Douglas County Sheriff Tony Spurlock answered questions at a press conference. Questions like, did your deputies know there were guns at the apartment? We respond to every call, anticipating that everyone has a gun. This is Colorado. Everybody has a gun. Um, And so we anticipate that when we respond to them that people have guns, and we address that in that fashion. I don't know. Despite Matthew Reel's mental health record, he wasn't an imminent threat until he was. In our interview with Sheriff Tony Spurlock, he described feeling like his hands were tied, just like Susan Real. There are so many levels of mental health that doesn't make, a, 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 doesn't make it a crime and doesn't make people a danger. I can tell you right now that Mr. Real 
had a mental health issue, but at 3 o'clock in the morning, he didn't rise to the occasion to an imminent danger of himself or others. Remember, 3 a.m., that was the first visit the police made to Matthew Reel's house on New Year's Eve. But in two hours, he became a homicidal individual and killed one of my officers and shot four others. Um, in that short span of time. We didn't violate his constitutional rights at 3 o'clock in the morning. We protected him and his rights at 3 o'clock in the morning because he was at this certain level. But at 5 o'clock in the morning, he was at a different level, and now we were protecting the rest of the community uh, from him. Law enforcement has to walk a very fine line here. In two hours, Douglas County deputies felt that that line had been crossed. So the scene that you described on New Year's Eve, a mentally ill person with firearms, a danger to himself or to others, how common is that? That's very common because we, um, we've we gone to a dozen of those calls since New Year's Eve where uh, persons with guns um, either threatened to commit suicide or uh, were, was upset about something and was armed. We knew they were armed. Uh, witnesses said they were armed. So that happens all the time. It, it happens on a regular basis across America. And Sheriff Tony Spurlock wants it to stop. Uh, we need that red flag law. We, we, need a, we need a change in the statute to save lives. A red flag law. It can also be called a gun violence restraining order or an extreme risk protection order. These laws allow family or friends to ask a judge for permission to temporarily remove guns from someone in a mental health crisis and safely store them until the judge rules that the person is okay. This is how we can fix this right now on the mental health front. And get out of the get out of the weeds with um, you know gun, the gun control or all those other kinds of things that's a different conversation this is a mental health conversation how do, how do we get in front of it that imminent danger statute he says and it's, it's it's this specific statute that has tied law enforcement's hands to protect citizens um, not only from themselves but from someone else too Red flag legislation is currently being considered in at least 16 states. These numbers are changing by the week, but for now, eight states already have these laws on the books, including California. According to state data, in 2016 and 2017, there were 159 people subject to gun violence restraining orders. That's what California calls its red flag law. A dozen of those were filed by family members and the rest by law enforcement. In California, here's basically how the whole thing works. Family or law enforcement can request the gun violence restraining order. If the court issues a temporary order, the guns are removed and stored. Then there has to be a hearing within 21 days. At the hearing, if the order is granted, it's good for up to one year and can be renewed. Here's Mara Elliott. She's the city attorney of San Diego. We need to prove to the satisfaction of a judge that there is a legitimate concern here that somebody is going to be a threat to themselves or to someone else. We're worried about lives here. So we have that burden of proof. On the flip side of it, the gun owner also has an opportunity to come to the court and tell their side of the story, to put their conduct into context. So how effective are red flag laws? There's not a ton of data, but we do have some information on the impact of Connecticut's. There, it's called a risk warrant law, and it was the first in the country. 
Using data from the state, researchers from Duke University found that in Connecticut, between 1999 and 2013, there were 762 of these gun removal cases, mostly involving middle-aged men. Researchers estimated that these gun removals prevented around 70 suicides. So, how might this type of law be received in Colorado? Governor John Hickenlooper is in favor. In a state like Colorado, where we have a higher percentage of our, of our people own guns, we should have a greater sense of urgency because whether you're looking at trying to prevent suicides or someone you know, going through a psychological crisis, going out and, and, and in many cases randomly shooting strangers, uh, right now we don't have any tools to provide to law enforcement or to families to help protect their loved ones. So, John Ferugia, what's the opposition to this idea? It's really about the civil rights of the mentally ill. Uh, Just because a person suffers depression at a certain time in their life, and look, many, many people over a period of time, situational depression, it's very, very common. So there is a concern that, well, wait a second, you could get, you know, Uncle Phil here. We don't like him, so we're going to turn him in and we're going to take his guns. The gun rights group Rocky Mountain Gun Owners emailed a handout to Colorado lawmakers at the end of March calling red flag laws gun confiscation, based largely on unsubstantiated accusations from disgruntled family members, neighbors, and romantic partners. The American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, has concerns too. In March, it issued an analysis of proposed red flag legislation in Rhode Island with concerns about civil liberties and about the use of coercive measures before any crime has been committed. Governor Hickenlooper says, yeah, some version of this could happen. Is there a chance that somebody might have their gun unfairly taken away from them for a a week or a month or even a year? Yeah, possibly, sure. But the bottom line is that when people are going through intense psychological periods of crisis. They should not have guns in their house. Just sitting there, they shouldn't. The debate over red flag laws, weighing the potential good and potential harm, ramped up here in Colorado in the past few weeks when a bill was finally introduced. Some sheriffs, district attorneys, and mental health advocates lined up behind it. But there are concerns. Politically and culturally, this is a tricky issue here. Remember Douglas County Sheriff Tony Spurlock? You heard from him at the beginning of this story. He's an elected Republican. And to hear him and others talk about red flag laws, it all sounds like a pretty common-sense idea, a moderate way to reduce gun violence. But for some, these red flag laws run right into the Second Amendment and due process. Now, that phrase, due process, it means the state has to respect a person's legal rights. I meet Senator Kevin Lundberg in a building across from the Capitol to talk through some of these concerns. My district is up in Larimer County, and it's called District 15. He's a Republican, a staunch supporter of gun rights, and not a supporter of red flag laws. 
Lundberg's concern is unintended consequences. He describes a bunch of different scenarios to me. If uh, somebody is deemed to be dangerous and therefore the police would come and get their guns, uh, it might be more than their guns that they get. Because there could be other people living in the home who have guns. And does that mean that you take it from everybody because one person has been deemed a, uh, a danger? And then there's this concern. For some people, that is kind of like the supreme violation of their personal private property rights. And uh, they're liable not to want to give up those guns very easily. Meaning, taking someone's guns away, if they're in a mental health crisis, could really upset them. It could make the whole thing worse. We may be then pushing people over an edge rather than keeping them from the edge. Uh, I'm not convinced that it's such a logical oh yeah, this is going to cure everything as much as it's going to add one more layer of problems. I also talked to Senator John Cook. He's a Republican from District 13. That's most of Weld County. And he's the Senate Majority Whip. Hello there, Senator Cook. How are you? Nice to meet you, Lee Patterson. Lee, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. In his office, there's a life-size cardboard cutout of some sort of old West Sheriff type. It's Matt Dillon, he says, the U.S. Marshal from the TV series Gunsmoke. Senator Cook himself was a sheriff for 12 years in Weld County. It's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to him. I'm just thinking about your, your background in law enforcement. When did you become aware of red flag laws? Um, basically, after the uh, Florida shooting, the Parkland School shooting, uh, was really when... I, I, I became aware of it. And what was your initial reaction? Did you My first reaction was, oh, this is just an attempt at gun control. Cook's thinking has changed a little bit since then. Well, I've been talking to several different people. I've uh, talked to the NRA a little bit. The NRA didn't get back to me for this story, but the group has recently put out mixed messages on red flag laws, saying dangerous people need to be stopped and that laws allowing the temporary removal of firearms would be one way to do that but then also saying that it is strongly opposed to red flag laws in some states because of due process concerns. But back to Senator John Cook, he says he's been talking to House Democrats too. I'd like to think um, if you come to me and say on anything, I'd be willing to listen. And that doesn't mean I'll agree with you in the end, but I'm willing to listen and um, decide for myself. His concerns boil down to Second Amendment rights and due process. So the downside is we have to get it right. And if we don't get it right, I can see abuses by, by the government, um, by the courts. So, um, you know, if we can get it right where we get somebody the treatment because they're having mental health issues and they're actually going to go out and, um, you know, maybe do a mass shooting, then, you know, obviously that's the upside. But if we just start, you know, taking guns away from people when we don't have proof or there's no due process, uh, that's a very slippery slope. But red flag laws do generally address the due process issue. In California, for example, everyone on the receiving end of a temporary order is entitled to a hearing within 21 days so that they can make their case to the judge. For the perspective of someone who is pushing for this bill, why Colorado needs it and why now, I drove down to Littleton to meet Tom Mauser. Hi, Tom. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I also meet his little dog, Diego. And then we go out back to talk. Mauser works with a group called Colorado Ceasefire. They have a lobbyist at the Capitol working on the red flag legislation. It's something they've been thinking about for a while now. 
And then once Douglas County happened, we then said, oh boy, we need to start talking about it a lot more. Here, he's talking about Matthew Real. Now, we, we, we've seen a case where it could have worked. And then Parkland increased that, that much more. Tom Mauser has been working on these issues here in Colorado for a while. So I started to ask him about the pace of change. In your 20-some-odd years of working on this, 19, he corrected me there, softly. 19 years exactly. Tom Mauser's son, Daniel, was killed 19 years ago at Columbine High School. That personal experience deeply motivates his activism. But Mauser says that, of course, he gets there are concerns about red flag laws, like a scenario in which guns are taken away before there's a hearing. That's called an ex parte order, and yes, it happens. Remember, most of California's gun violence restraining orders have been done this way. But on the other hand... I think of the Douglas County shooter, that if he had known that his guns were going to be seized and he had five days, let's say, before there was some court action, what would have happened during those five days? I think we would have seen the same outcome and maybe worse than what we saw. Those issues to figure out, the particulars of how the whole thing would work, those have sunk the bill for now. Lawmakers decided with just a few days left in the session not to move it forward, not to give law enforcement and families this ability to stop someone from having a gun temporarily. The fact that it's an election year probably didn't help. Last time the legislature passed two controversial gun laws, two lawmakers lost their jobs. And back to my question about the pace of change. I asked Tom Mauser if he ever gets frustrated. There have been times like that, sure. But, you know, at the same time, I learned early on that this is, this is a tough issue. Um, we're talking about a certain gun culture in this country. We're talking about uh, a social change. And that doesn't, that doesn't come quickly or easily in America. So I, I learned early on, you have to be in this for the, for the long haul. And that was Imminent Danger, a special report from Rocky Mountain PBS with Lee Patterson and John Ferugia. In case you missed anything or want to hear it again, head over to CPR.org. And while you're there, check out our other conversations with the men and women who want to be governor. You can listen to the interviews or read the transcripts as we get them on the record on guns, health care, immigration, and education. Finally, congratulations are in order to Rachel Estabrook, who's moving on from Colorado Matters, but not from CPR News. After being a key player on our show, she is CPR's new news director. We're very proud. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters. Thanks for spending time with us.